Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Pond Hunter Broadcast from the Under the Sea Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Take a look into the world of koi ponds, water gardens, and the lifestyles of the aquatically obsessed. Meet the pros, hobbyists, and cover some no-nonsense pond advice straight from the field. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Here's your host, koi pond and water garden expert, Mike Gannon. That's right, all things aquatic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Pond Hunter Radio broadcast for episode 44. I'm your host, Mike Gannon, and I have a great guest for this show, world-renowned pond builder, a sculptor of rock and water, with more than 2,000 projects spread out over many different countries. He's also the author of several pond and water garden books and host of Animal Planet's original TV show, The Pool Masters. He is truly one of my pond heroes, and I'm very excited to have Mr. Anthony Archer-Wills with me on the phone. Anthony, are you on the line? Mike, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Happy New Year, and how are you doing today? Very well, yes. I'm looking out on a snowy scene, it's, and the sun is shining. It's beautiful. A far cry, actually, from uh, the limpid depths of water gardens. Yes. <laughs> but still, beauty the beauty of nature all the same is, is something wonderful to enjoy. We got a little bit of snow in my area as well, and it, it really is shaping up to be a beautiful day. And um, I just want to say thanks again for being here. And um, clearly... You're a pioneer in the world of modern and contemporary pond design. You've been at it for a couple of years now. And to me, being a <laughs> pond builder is something of a, it's a curious occupation and livelihood to make. And I'm always fascinated with how pond professionals come into this type of work. How did pond building and design start for you? Well, really, uh, by default, actually, because um, my interest was more in uh, chemistry and physics and uh, engineering and all sorts of mechanical things. But uh, I think um, I had a certain attention uh, deficit, and uh, that failed. Uh, And I loved water, and uh, I really got into water gardening by default. Uh, The reason, I think, for this was... uh, Really, at my formative age of uh, about uh, four, five, six to eight, um, I was introduced to water in rather extraordinary ways because um, <clears throat> when I was a child, I was taken to big country houses where there were uh, what they called lily tanks where people grew water lilies and typically these were a formal design, either circular or rectangular. And they were really designed to display water lilies in the country houses because um, one has to remember that before uh, the end of the 19th century, 
very few people built ponds because there was not much available to put into them. And uh, right. then the uh, French hybridizer uh, Marliac uh, produced all these wonderful new water lily hybrids uh, at the end of the 19th century. And people began to uh, get really excited and a craze started in, in building ponds that one could uh, display these in. And so I yeah. became fascinated by this. And... Um, uh, I think that might have been a, a formative uh, point, coupled with the fact that uh, I was taken to see big country houses that had their own uh, sewage plants, and ah. I was fascinated to see how the sewage water from these large estates was purified going through reed beds and uh, different filter systems of clinker and came out pure at the other end so um, yeah this i think had an effect on me <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's amazing um how they would do that i mean essentially using wetland technology to purify their water right there on the estates. That's what it sounds like they they were pretty much doing at that time. You're absolutely right. And so nothing is really new. It's all old technology and they were allowing nature to um, do its job and purify the uh, water because that's what nature does. If anything horrible gets into a pond or lake, there's all the bacteria and the plants to clean it up and it soon uh, purifies itself. And um, then another curious thing happened um, because I was sent away to boarding school at the age of eight and um, they wisely or unwisely allowed us to pretty much do what we liked uh, in the <laughs> Sundays in the afternoons and we had streams and springs and ponds in the woods and ah. uh, we could mess about in the mud and uh, build dams and uh, there was also a, a very interesting Roman bath there with a spring and water coming out of the back of these uh, sort of caves into a beautiful, what must have been a, a swimming pool uh, in bygone days. It was a lovely sort of formal basin, rather crumbling at the edges. And uh, this was full of interesting plants and creatures, and I would stare into the depths and see that basically one had a, a complete world underwater, uh, a complete a ecosystem where one had uh, life and death and decay and, and rebirth. And th this was, you know, a fascination for me. Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing. So that Roman bath was still somewhat functional apart from the, the degradation around the, the edges. It sounds like it was still holding water. It was still holding water and um, it was overgrown and, and uh, sort of forgotten pretty much uh, out in the woods. But it was a, a, a wonderful feature. I loved huh. it, sort of decayed um, feeling. Uh, so, you know, I think that... Uh, kind of shaped my um, my imagination and love uh, for water and both formal and naturalistic um, features. I, I think one point which is of interest is very few naturalistic or free-form shape pools were actually constructed uh, until, um, well, really recent times. 
um, probably around uh, the last world war um, after that people started to build a much more uh, what we would call modern and imaginative uh, informal shapes uh, okay. and as I you know I fell into um, as I say this by uh, default because I was at a loose end and I decided to build a pond and then I built another small pond they were hideous concrete structures um, which I would have been utterly ashamed of these days. But this was how people built them. They were typically concrete uh, or brick-lined and then had um, some sort of coping around them in stone or, or brick right. and to, to try and disguise the concrete edges, which never really worked very well. Um, so that's uh, pretty much how I started. And then somebody saw the pond and said, would you build one for me? And uh, being sort of rather, as I say, at a loose end, I said, yes, sure, I'll do anything for a good lunch. <laughs> now, how old were you at that time when somebody actually asked you to, to build for them? You weren't just building for yourself. No, I was um, actually working on a, a tug, ocean-going tugs, because I said I had an interest in engineering, but this wasn't working out too well at all. So between times and between trips, um, I would have been 17 at the time. I built okay. my first half-hearted pond at the age of, well, le at the very, I would say early 17, yeah, uh, uh, about hmm. 64, 1963, 64. Um, okay. So, you know, I've been doing it since then, which is over 50 years. It seems yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure the time has, has flown. I'm sure, too, that you've seen that, um, you know, you'd mentioned you had an interest in chemistry, physics, and engineering. The, the pond building um, occupation really oftentimes is going to require you to practice a little bit of chemistry, certainly uh, some engineering and a little bit of physics even <laughs> from time to well, time. So yes, at least you yes, didn't I have mean, to this... fully give those up. No, no, absolutely not. They were helpful. Um, it was a very useful ad adjunct to my work, um, especially, you know, the pumping system, pipe frictions. Um, I love machines. I love pumps, all those sort of things. And um, I, of course, had an aquarium, and that was another learning curve because um, that had an undergravel filter, and um, it was all planted up, and one learned very quickly that a well-planted aquarium um, had clear water uh, yes. and worked like the ponds. Um, it was all about the planting. And uh, so the whole system of the water chemistry um, really became part of the uh, equation in, in getting good water. Um, but what I think was interesting was I, I grew water plants. I, I was fascinated by aquatic plants, and I started what I called my uh, water plant nursery. Um, again, it was a very small amateurish affair to begin with. But this actually grew and blossomed until uh, in England I was, had a staff of 15 and we would have three um, 
teams out at once building ponds, and it actually became, uh, wow. you know, quite a productive and an efficient system at, at one point or another. That's amazing. <laughs> and so, so this is in, say, the 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 late sixties. Would that be correct in saying that when you had the, late sixties, early yep, late sixties, early seventies. Um, okay. A, a very important. Um, revelation occurred to me because um, I was uh, struggling. It was very difficult to make these ponds look naturalistic um, using the old techniques of putting a, a concrete or early type of liner pond in and then trying to hide it and disguise it by balancing uh, slabs of stone and rocks around the edge that you could always see underneath and see this telltale rim which said straight away this is artificial this isn't natural and yes. also one went to a lot of length a lot of trouble to try and form an attractive shape um, and then get the rocks to conform to this shape, and and that was very time-consuming and didn't very, it didn't work very well at all. One day I was um, lying in my bath, which is, um, you know, it rather smacks of Ar Archimedes, I know, but I do find that it <laughs> stimulates the brain. And I thought, what are you doing? You're losing money with this. It's taking so long to do, and it's not really very effective. What are we trying to do? We're trying to make a pool that holds water and will hold water, hopefully, in excess of 100 years, and yet look as though nature had created it. So what we need to do is to create a waterproof bag into which everything else goes and yes. this was a revelation to me because instead of agonizing over the shape and trying to get rocks to conform to the shape i made a very simple form very interest very simple water shape and then i would put all the rock work uh, promontories um, uh, outcroppings beaches whatever it was involved inside the liner. The liner became unimportant except as a watertight vessel to hold everything else. And okay. so one had, yeah, it was wonderful. One had complete free hand to place the rock as it wanted to go. It would tell one, this rock needs to go here and this one needs to go next to it and so forth. One had a complete free hand to have artistic license with this method, and right. so I began. I began to teach um, for the agricultural training board uh, new methods of construction, and that was huh. a, a, an interesting exercise. <laughs> yeah, especially given the the long history of the use of concrete to create water features, and you you really were credited have been credited. Um, being among the first to use a butyl rubber type of liner for ponds. Now, where yeah, did you that's find interesting, that material? Because hmm. you had to have taken that material from another industry. Was it like a roofing liner? Where, where, how did you come across this material at that time? It was interesting because um, it was actually used in the reservoir industry. 
Ah, um, it, okay. had, it had been originally developed during the war, as I understand, or about that time, for undersea cables. Butyl was used um, for waterproofing uh, transatlantic cables, also for making um, bulletproof um, fuel tanks for the fighter planes because it's of its elastic qualities. It was used as a lining in the tanks, apparently. And hmm. um, so I was involved with a, a company called uh, Gordon Lowe, and they were the first people to discover a way of actually welding it together, um, which was had been very difficult. You have to use heat and pressure and things. And so they um, had a press, and I was asked to help construct a reservoir. And I thought, this is wonderful. Gosh, um, <laughs> we can use this in my ponds. So for years, I used uh, butyl. And then we found that uh, EPDM uh, was uh, actually more cost-effective and okay. pretty much as good. Um, so particularly in... Uh, the United States, uh, we use EPDM now, um, yes. and I think EPDM is becoming much more widely used uh, in Europe. There are, of course, many other materials that one can use as well. Um, yes. But the thing about the EPDM uh, and the butyl is their elastic quality, um, 3 to 400 percent um, elasticity before breaking point, which allows them to, you know, conform around anything, uh, sure. a rock or any sharp place before actually uh, breaking. Yeah, you never want to put it to the test. <laughs> oh, we actually have I... tested, you know, to destruction um, yeah. on occasions to make sure. Um, you know, everything was right, hunky-dory. We would do a weld or a join, then attach it to a vehicle and pull it apart and see what broke. And invariably, the original sheet would break rather than the weld. Um, oh. So one, really, we would test it out. That's great. So no, no problems with seaming. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I, I've... Never built a concrete pond. I've been building um, really with only EPDM. I've ripped out a few concrete ponds, but never used that as a material. So I think it's really a very smart choice for the construction of um, many, many types of water features. Your now right. your garden center. Just to to touch back on that for a moment, because I think a lot of people these days, when they think garden center, they're thinking of Home Depot. It conjures up images like that. Can you kind of tell me about how your garden center was set up uh, at that time? Well, yes, love to. It was really an aquatic center rather than a garden center. We only grew um, aquatic, moisture-loving, uh, and uh, emergent plants and associated trees and shrubs at the nursery. Okay. And we had these uh, polythene tunnels, you know, plastic tunnels and shade tunnels. And um, it gradually grew and expanded over the years um, until it was, you know, a lot of fun. Uh, it would give me immense pleasure to walk amongst the uh, beds of plants and see how they were growing. And 
uh, it, it's such a wonderful experience to actually grow plants from scratch, and whether it's from seed or cuttings or divisions, um, and to see them all beautifully laid out in rows and growing, and then you know to have delighted customers coming round and picking out the plants they want and going out with armfuls of plants, it's it's immensely rewarding. Yeah, and I hope people never I hope people don't let that get away. It it worries me with the Home Depots and Lowe's and, and those type of operations where people are aren't gonna realize the magic of of a beautiful aquatic center or garden center and how it's it's worth driving an hour or two to get to some of these places. Whereas um you know these days so many people are about convenience and uh I hope that magic never goes away. I hope people keep that tradition no, alive. I think, you know, that's interesting, but I think the magic is in the plants and choosing them. And, you know, even you know, going around uh, Lowe's or Home Depot and seeing all these wonderful plants, that's very exciting as well. And you can choose some wonderful things from these uh, um, big uh, depots. Um, so, there's magic in that they don't actually grow them themselves um right you know the gr- the growers do that but there's still often a wonderful um collection so i don't think um one one should knock them because they they also you know have a, a an important part to play in um stimulating people into growing things and i think if um the the plants were not readily available to the public um people probably wouldn't bother they see something and they think oh isn't that wonderful i must take that home and grow it i actually call that uh, in my lectures suffering from the garden center syndrome where people actually don't plan a garden, but they see something they love and think, oh, I must take that home, and this keeps happening. And, oh, we've got to try and find a place to plant that now. And, you know, people will bring well-wishers and gifts. Well, they'll bring plants to people. And in the end, the garden becomes really quite cluttered up with a whole collection of plants rather than actually following a design. And I yeah. think that can lead to a mistake. I remember my mother's garden um, had an immense collection of plants, but absolutely no bones or shape to it. Um, <laughs> so in the winter, it really lacked, it hadn't got a good skeleton. And I think you need to have a very good, strong structure in a garden um, so that even if the things aren't in flower, they've died down for the winter, the shapes and forms and structure of the garden still shows up nicely, you know? Yeah. And it's, uh, I just I find it very interesting that your garden center was, was busy with crews out there installing ponds. I, I love that. I think that's wonderful. It seems like there was a lot of kind of pond-related activity happening over in England, um, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, you know, from what you're describing, I know that the, the koi industry was kind of kicking off, at least in that area, was was blossoming at that time, too. I, I find that very interesting that all that was coming out of out of England at the time. 
Yes, I think um, there was. Well, of course, the English have always been a nation of gardeners, haven't they? And a lot of the people who started... uh, wonderful aquatic nurseries um, like Waterfords in this country um, were Englishmen who who came over, or English people. Um, But I think one thing that was interesting was how things started more from a sort of functional angle, and the the aesthetics came later. Um, I remember the first really formative um, pond that I made was really crucial, I think, to my modern um, work was being asked in the late 60s to build a um, trout lake. And um, this was beautiful. It was not huge. It was about an acre and a half, this one. And the customer said to me, I want gin clear water for these trout. And I thought, hmm, well, we're going to have to build this rather like one would an aquarium or koi pond. It's got to be filtered water. And so I built a a big gravel filter, a huge under gravel filter, um, and had a waterfall from the filter into the big trout pond. And, of course, they called it a lake because um, any stretch of water more than 100 feet across is called a lake in England. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, you know, they glorify even the smallest stretch of water, whilst in this country we have to have um, miles of water before it becomes a lake. Yeah. Um, It's an interesting thing. Um, Anyway, uh, this was very successful, and uh, people you know, were amazed how how clear this was. And I think this was probably a forerunner of the swimming pond. Um, I build a lot of those now. And, of course, they've been uh, accepted in Germany initially, um, uh, swimming pools using uh, plants instead of chemicals. And uh, now in this country, um, we have the first public one, uh, in Minnesota, so it's just the same technology as the old undergravel aquarium filter, um, or what people are doing for koi ponds. Yeah, it's amazing how versatile that very simple concept of filtration really can be, and and how it can be scaled from the smallest of aquariums up to what you're saying um, lakes and even beyond. So. So you're at your garden center. It's, it's, it's a busy place. But at some point, you started branching off internationally and doing projects in other parts of the world. How did that end up coming about? Uh, that's a very interesting question, one which I really not thought about too much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a recommendation. My first overseas project was in the south of France. Um, when okay. somebody called me up out of the blue and said, would you come and build us a cascade? And I thought, hmm, I don't know if I like the sound of cascade. <laughs> it sounds rather <laughs> boring and formal, but of course it's the French word for waterfall, cascade. 
um, yes. and I hadn't quite put two and two together. And he said, look, um, please come over. We'll pay your expenses, etc." And he said, you can see if you like the project. And uh, if you do, it would be wonderful. We can move forward. If not, we'll shake hands and say, well, very good to meet you. Goodbye. Um, and so on that basis, I flew to the south of France. The project was amazing. It was wonderful. They were the most charming, marvelous people. And that led to another project in France and and then others and, and word of mouth. And I think uh -huh. possibly at that time I'd written my first book, um, which w was really internationally accepted and, and translated into French and Dutch and many, many languages. Several languages, and yes. And then people started to call me up and say, Anthony, would you you know, come and do something for us? Um, so this was immensely rewarding, um, although I have to be truthful, it was slightly to the expense of the um, work at home um, okay. because I wasn't able to take quite so much um, personal uh, involvement in it. Right. Interesting, though. So some of the work was coming from your books. Now, uh, of course, word of mouth is always the best way <laughs> to get introduced to anybody for procuring um, new work because it certainly wasn't the Internet back in those days. Um, no, so you no. started writing books. What, what was, um, I'm always curious about that as well. What was the process for you? Did you sit down and write a book or was it piecemeal? Did you, did you have essays and stuff that you compiled over a period of time? And well, what, what made had, you want yeah. to write a book? Um, I'll tell you why exactly. Um, I had been uh, giving lectures and teaching for the uh, Agricultural Training Board and an organization called Bali, which was the British Association of Landscape Industries. And I realized that a lot of information was um, being you know, passed to people. And in far from them using my ideas and putting me out of business, it actually brought a lot more business in. Um, and people would call up and say, you know, Anthony, this looks more complicated than we sort of want to get involved in. Um, and the, these were big landscape companies. Um, would you come and help us or advise and, you know, all that good stuff? And okay. I said to my colleague, I've worked um, for a lot of landscape people like uh, John Brooks and... Um, I said, John, I really should write a book and get all this down. You know, I'm giving all these people these ideas and, you know, I, I should really get them down. And he said, well, yes, you really ought to. Or he said, I'll write the book. <laughs> he get <laughs> on with it, he said, get on with it. <laughs> so it was John, actually, who uh, catapulted me into this job, which it is actually an onerous task. I have to say, if anyone has written a book, they will know it's not easy. It's a lot of hard work. Um, yeah. And I just had to slog at it. In three big, I had three big hits at it. Um, one when I was in Florida, 
working on studying the subtropical water plants. Um, okay. And then uh, uh, one when I was actually in, um, uh, where was I now? Let me think. Um, somewhere in the, in the Mediterranean. I think it was uh, in, in Cyprus. And um, I was mm -hmm. able to have a calm mind. You have to have a calm mind. The rest was very early in the morning in England before the people came in to work uh, at the nursery and, and get going on the project. So I would be, be up in the summer at five in the morning writing um, for mm -hmm. a couple of hours or so before the work started. It was tough for me because I'm not a morning person. Um, you know, after my devices, I would sleep till 12. Um, so yeah. it was really a hard slog to get this book done. <laughs> right. My gosh. Well, I can say for sure, I, I have three of your books. I'm not sure if there's any that I'm missing, but the information in those um, still is completely relevant to this very day. I mean, there, there's really, when you go through and you, you're, you think of how, how times have changed so much over the last, just say, 20 years, but the information in those books are still so completely relevant. Um, they're really quite a, a punch of information in all of those. For, for anybody, whether you're a professional or even just a hobbyist, they're, they're truly, uh, I feel, they're, they're treasures. I'm very happy with I'm looking over at my, my bookshelf right now. Um, they're right there. <laughs> but they really well, are completely you know, relevant I appreciate, to this very day. You know, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think, you know, the principles are going to hold good. Uh, techniques uh, improve. Um, but these were fundamental ideas which I laid down. And uh, the books were used in uh, colleges, um, in all the landscape courses, um, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's a system which is very simple and often the simplest things are the best sure yeah and even um a lot of problem solving you do a lot of troubleshooting and you know pond builders can get themselves into trouble out there in the field sometimes and i uh, even suggest ways to get machinery unstuck i mean there, <laughs> there's some good stuff that that people can, can certainly uh <laughs> right you 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 always think, oh, um, I've pretty much seen it all, and then something else comes to bite you. And think, yes. oh, my word, how do we deal with this? Uh, so, you know, problems are, are put there to be solved, aren't they? And uh, one really enjoys the challenge. Absolutely, yes. Um, but it's good to have those books on, on hand if I ever have a problem. I, go grab the book. <laughs> um, so you, Well, I had mentioned... a wonderful... Sorry, a bigger pardon. Carry on. Oh, no problem. You'd, you'd mentioned um, in some of your projects, now you were, you were building waterfalls in France, but your projects have evolved over the years, and you've done so many. Um, they include everything from deep pools, long streams, caves, and grottos. Um, many of your projects have rocks that weigh many, many tons. Um, what is... What would you say is maybe uh, your favorite project or a project that particularly stands out to you? Gosh, one, um, gosh, several interesting uh, points you bring up there. Um, I think the projects become favorite um, with the people rather than the actual 
production. Uh, and I think if people are, are wonderful, then you love the project. Um, and that makes or mars a job. I think it's all to do with the people. Um, so my, some of my favorite ones have been with the loveliest people. I have to say that. But I also like to do the things that I would have always wanted as a child. <clears throat> I love caves. I love secret passages. I've always wanted to be able to get behind a waterfall and be behind the curtain of falling water. And so I try to design things which I would have always loved myself. And hence the use of uh, big rocks, because I always think a few big rocks are much more convincing than lots of little ones. Um, you know, for example, if you if you need to build a, a rock wall, a retaining wall, let's say uh, six feet or two meters high, um, 20 feet, you know, long, um, you could do that with lots of pieces weighing a few hundred pounds, and it would take maybe a week or more to build. Or I could do it with three big rocks, which could be put in in a morning. And the three ah. big rocks, I can guarantee, will look as though they've always been there. And it's part of a natural rock escarpment, an outcropping. Ah. So much more naturalistic and convincing than what would typically perhaps look like a stone wall. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So you like you kind of you enjoy creating a bit of mystery in your designs. It sounds like with these caves and grottos and and the the big stone creates that that visual impact. And as you mentioned, makes it look like it has been there, uh, placed there by nature. Absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with you. You know, some of my favorite projects really have to deal exactly with the client and. Um, my interactions with them and even their responses to a project. Um, some of the, <laughs> I guess we all have our problems out in the field too. I guess some of the biggest disasters usually are, are client related too. It, have you ever had a, a, a project that just really went the other direction from what you were planning? Have you had any disasters? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, one or two that have croaked or gone belly up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've had in my career and I, I must have had gosh um, 2500 clients or more um, I can honestly say the bad ones I can list on one hand let you know four fing yeah. three four fingers very few uh, difficult people but one or two were really a problem and one turned me gray literally within a couple of months uh, I hate um, dishonesty and um, I hate uh, people trying to be clever uh, at one's expense um, and unjust and it's awful if you get a, a client that swears that black is white or that you've never had that particular conversation uh, when sure. you actually done it and agreed it so that's few few and far between and i really don't dwell on them because um that's only self-destructive i always try and think of the positive exactly we what we can offer to people 
I really truly believe that this, the occupation, how we make our livelihood and designing and building ponds is such a gift to people that I agree with you. You just move on. If, if there's somebody who can't experience it and enjoy what we have to offer, um, then you move forward and you move to the next customer and you try to create happiness and appreciation with them. Um, I'm so glad I, you I, said that. I, I, I love that uh, attitude. And to me, it raises the quality of life for people. It, it gives them fun, pleasure, drama, excitement, and a wonderful feeling of repose and tranquility in their own home, um, in their own uh, property, which without the water and the experience of the plants and nature and the rocks, uh, they would be really bereft of, of this wonderful therapy. Yes, and they could be two years old or they could be 92 years old, and the appeal is still there. There's something magical about um, water. And when I look at designs and water features, I kind of look at a lot of them as having three basic elements, which would be the pool area, the stream, and the waterfall. When you're doing design, what, which one of those elements, if you were to pick of those three, gives you the most pleasure? Uh, well... Gosh, another difficult question. <laughs> you are, you are, really. You I've been are up touching, all night thinking of hard things to ask you. <laughs> you 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 touch nerves, don't you? Um, <laughs> gosh, well, I would say the waterfall and the pool uh, are pretty equal. Um, the waterfall has the wonderful drama, this amazing tension where you have water fighting with rock. And the rock is sending the water in all these different complex directions. So uh, replicating that is a marvelous challenge and a, a very exciting experience and can be beautiful if you have the right rock and you have the client who's happy to give you a free hand and let you go ahead. But the pool has such magic in its uh, placid surface and its uh, underwater depths and all its creatures and life and uh, sparkle and reflections and the wonderful yeah. water lilies and lotus that you can grow in it. So I think both, you know, I love it all. That's the problem. I right. love it all. <laughs> I never get blasé about any project, however large or small. Um, I just really get right into them, and I enjoy the process. I love working with people and meeting people and creating something that's a real pleasure for them. Yeah, and that's probably what has brought you to the point after you know so many years of doing it that it only would seem appropriate uh, that you would end up with a TV show to help share this vision to an even <laughs> – an even broader uh, audience. It's, it's such a personal thing when you're working with people directly to create these water features. But now you've, you've, you have the opportunity on television on Animal Planet's The Pool Master, which is one of their hit TV shows. Um, you're the host of that. How did that all come about? Um, well, it was actually an interview. Um, they were looking for somebody, and uh, I think they'd heard about my work. They must have done, because I've, I've you know, had the honor of working for dukes and earls and um, uh, you know, uh, 
music personalities, pop personalities, musicians, uh, uh, Shakespearean actor such as uh, Lord Olivier. I, I, so oh I gosh. think they thought, oh, this guy sounds interesting. Maybe we should give him a, a shot. And apparently they interviewed over 100 people and they thought, well, maybe... Um, he's okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I I have a very poor opinion of myself, but um, um, they thought maybe um, he he's the right guy for the job. Ah, okay. Well, I think they were correct. You you are the right guy for the job. I've seen all the shows, of course. You know, I I um I really truly enjoyed it quite a bit. I will confess to you that I, I wish you were called the pond master, but I'm okay with the pool master too, because <laughs> it kind of touches on, on all these different elements. Do you have a favorite episode that you did? I, I, and also I got to think people watch these TV shows and think, Oh, it's got to be so fun. It, there's got to be some difficulties and challenges in, in creating these TV shows as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was all a huge challenge. Um, the time factor was the biggest problem. Time factor, budget, um, uh, 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 other activities, because we were taken away to um, shoot other scenes, uh, B-roll, B you know, and so the actual amount of time able to be uh, located to the project um, was slimmed down to about two weeks, uh, often under two weeks, which is difficult to actually create an elaborate and complex uh, project in that time, when normally one would spend um, four to six weeks on, on a similar project. So yeah. um, that was very, very challenging for everybody, and I have the greatest admiration for the team. Um, they were wonderful, all those people um, working on it, and uh, the, the hard work, often working till well after midnight and starting again at 4 or 5 in the morning. We had a tremendous uh, uh, workload to get through all that. Um, yeah. And they were, I mean, they were younger than me and, and uh, worked furiously to get it all done. Um, so, yes, hugely challenging. Um, I mean, they were all fun in their own way, and the the people were lovely, and uh, uh, we had we had a great time. I must admit, with all the all the different projects, they were some of them were really beautiful. Um, the the, the uh, Japanese garden um, was a lot of fun, and uh, yeah. uh, I think turned out really beautifully. Um, one one of the <laughs> amusing thing was all these pools were built and filled and often filled uh, minutes before we had to test them out so the water was frigid <laughs> and on you know many of these scenes i had to get into fright frightfully cold water uh, <laughs> and um the initial um one of the initial shows had me uh diving into this pool in uh, Hollywood, uh, which had just been filled, and I'm sure the water was no more than about 45, 50 degrees, and I was in there for half an hour doing oh all these God. things, swimming over glass panels and di going down water slides and chutes. 
<laughs> and uh, they they promised me a, a hot shower at the end of it. And I was I would hope. really looking forward to this. And then, uh-oh, they said, oh, so sorry, though all the water's been turned off. <laughs> 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 so that that was a oh gosh that was a tough episode. Well, at least they didn't forget to plug in the camera and they didn't have to do it again. <laughs> oh right, no no, but wonderful so, wonderful wonderful crews, wonderful people, and um, you know again, hats off to the uh, all the contractors who worked so hard on all that. Absolutely. As someone who builds, you know, I, I watch these shows and I guess it's just built into me that I'm, I'm thinking about the logistics of your projects as I'm watching the show unfold. And you see the timeframes presented by way of the prism of television, which isn't exactly uh, reality. And I, I know, as you had said, these guys must have been working till, as you mentioned, midnight and beyond. I mean, it's amazing what they pulled off. You really did put together amazing contractors and a crew to work with and just made it look effortless and, and just made these absolutely beautiful projects. And I'm, I'm so glad that it's out there because I, I really feel, you know, that the pond and water feature genre is underserved in the TV industry. There's got to be uh -huh. 20 shows that show guys eating hamburgers, 50 shows with guys putting up sheetrock and renovating houses and um, there's maybe two to three shows for water features, which are the jewels of any landscape. It's, uh, it's definitely an underserved uh, genre that I, I hope grows. I really do. Because that, well, that I think people are dedicated. Yeah. They, they love working in this uh, genre. And uh, I always say one's only as good as one's team. And um, when I had three crews working on pond construction, um, I was, you know, full of admiration for them. If you got a good crew, they would do a wonderful job. If it was a poor crew, it wouldn't. So uh, I love people and um, keeping them happy. I always believe, you know, in, in um, the carrot rather than the stick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope uh, there's a big future for ponds and water gardens on TV. I, I've seen enough guys hanging sheetrock and painting it. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the future for the pool master? Well, I mean, I, I have no intention of retiring, no plans at all. I, I don't think I ever could. And I, I remember listening to a, a television program uh, featuring Sir Geoffrey Jellicoe, who was 80 at the time. And he said, I thought I'd be retiring at 80. And he said, I'm actually busier than ever. Um, he was a landscape architect. And um, so I think probably uh, I'll go on maybe until uh, I uh, drop. Please don't retire. We, we need you, Anthony. We, we need you in this. And um, I just want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time and coming on here and, and sharing your, your expertise, um, your background, everything with us. Um, you're truly an inspiration for me. And I know, the whole a whole generation of of pond builders so thank you so much for taking your time to join me on the pond hunter radio broadcast and i'll, I'll always be following your adventures 
and um, look <laughs> forward to, to seeing you again someday. I always like to tell the, the story. The first time I was able to see you speak um, was up in, it was a, oh, gosh, I can't remember the place. It was at a, a garden club in Massachusetts. I think it was Worcester. And it was the night of a uh, blizzard. <laughs> and I live in New Jersey. Oh, I said my, my wife, word. I said, oh, my gosh, Anthony Archer Wells is going to be speaking. So we hopped in the car and we drove five hours through a blizzard. And um, it was just a pleasure to, to it was an adventure for us. And uh, it was it was a great time to see you speak and meet you. And I ran into you a few weeks ago. And I hope I get to see you and spend some time with you again. Well, Mike, uh, me too. And it was absolutely wonderful uh, talking with you. Thank you so much. And I, I hope um, uh, you able to do a lot of beautiful ponds this, uh, this season. Because, uh, I intend certainly, to. You obviously enjoy it as much as I do. Very much. It's my life. <laughs> it's, it's what I do. So, and thank Wonderful. you for the inspiration. Um, Not well, at all. Thank you luck. so much. Cheers, and, and have a wonderful 2017. I look forward to seeing you again, Anthony. Mike, thanks, and the same to you. Thanks so much. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye. Take good care. That was the extraordinary Anthony Archer Wills, everybody, the author of The Water Gardener, Water Power, and Designing Water Features. And his books can still be found on Amazon.com. They're out there. Go ahead and get them. They're a wonderful resource for anybody, whether you're a hobbyist or a professional or just interested in seeing beautiful projects and beautiful pictures. And, of course, he is host of Animal Planet's The Pool Master. His TV show can be found on Animal Planet and, of course, on YouTube. He's also involved with teaching with the Genesis 3, which is a program designing with water. Um, and promoting BioNova naturally filtered swimming pools, which he had mentioned a little bit earlier. His website is archerwills.com if you would like to contact him. And thank you again, Anthony, for coming onto the podcast. I appreciate it very much. My name is Mike Gannon, everybody. My company is Full Service Aquatics, based out of Summit, New Jersey. We design, install, and service amazing water gardens, ponds, koi ponds, and water features of every type. If you're interested in a project, please reach out. I'm easy to find. My website is fullserviceaquatics.com and you can catch me on Facebook. And there's plenty more Pond Hunter on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram. And the podcast now can also be found on YouTube. And as always, iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Thanks, everybody. Take good care. Be good to each other. And share this pond-keeping lifestyle with everyone you know, it could potentially save the world. Peace, everybody. You have been listening to the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Mike Gannon, the Pond Hunter. In the pursuit of all things aquatic, broadcasting Wednesday nights on Blog Talk Radio, the Pond Hunter, keeping it pondy for the aquatically obsessed. That's right. Keeping it pondy for the aquatically obsessed. Take care, everybody, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast.